Merry Christmas Eve to you all. It's great to see you all here, and I'm so happy to be with you tonight. This, uh, this candlelight service is just about my favorite among all the times we gather for worship as a church family. Uh, I've been under the weather for a while. You can still hear it in my voice. Uh, but I think I'm on the mend now, and I did not want to miss this service for anything. I remember coming to this service seven years ago, about a month after I had had my first knee surgery. I was still using a walker to get around while I healed up, and it was an icy Christmas Eve that year. Uh, But my family helped me roll in here somehow. We made it. Someday they may have to carry me in on a stretcher, but I'll keep coming here as long as I can, whatever it takes. I believe God is with us here tonight, and that's why each of us is here. On each of the four Sundays of Advent, we lit one of the candles on the Advent wreath. We lit the center Christ candle tonight before the service started. And from that center candle, we will all light our own candles at the end of the service, those candles you received when you arrived tonight, as we pass the flame from one to another. For Jesus is the light of the world who has come down into the darkness for us. Last Sunday, we looked at the gifts of hope and joy that the coming Messiah would bring from Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 40. Tonight, we're going to return to Isaiah's prophecy, a different section of it, to see and receive more of the Messiah's gifts, the gifts of peace and love. So follow along as I read. Our text is in Isaiah 9. And it'll just be two verses tonight, verse 2 and verse 6. This is the word of God. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We have always believed that our Savior, Jesus Christ, was born at night when it was dark. Darkness is always the time when we are most aware of our need for God. Darkness is what our newspapers and news programs are describing these days. Darkness is what the lab report shows when it finds a disease in our body. Darkness is what many young adults feel about their economic prospects. And darkness darkness is what remains in our hearts after we've been hurt. In the light of day, we do what we can to keep the darkness at bay. We work hard, we make plans, we focus on the reasons for hope and the clear blessings we can see in life. We do all of that to keep our despair locked away in in just a corner of our hearts. But in the dark, our fears, our grief, our anger, our guilt, our shame, they break out, and they seem to have free range in our hearts. So it has always been. When Isaiah wrote this ninth chapter of his prophecy, it was the 8th century B.C. It was a dark time for the tiny nation of Judah. 
Uh, the ever-expanding Assyrian Empire had already swallowed up the ten tribes of Israel and dispersed the people among the nations. The two tribes remaining in the southern kingdom of Judah lived under constant fear that they would be next. Under the shadow of this threat, it was dark. Even in the daytime, it was dark. Isaiah begins our text tonight by proclaiming extraordinary hope. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those are the opening words of what many Old Testament scholars believe was an ancient Hebrew hymn. That the words were sung over and over and over because they depicted the love of God who would come for his people when it was dark. They continued singing that hymn down through the centuries and they taught it from one generation to the next. And so these words were well known long before George Handel got a hold of them for his music, uh, The Messiah. The chances are good that even the shepherds abiding in their fields outside of Bethlehem knew about these words. They knew about hoping for a great light that would pierce the darkness. What the light means is that heaven has broken into our dark world. But God did not drop down from heaven more instructions or laws or rituals. What God was giving us was God. Now you would think if Isaiah were going to offer divine light to the Judeans who were struggling under the oppression of the Assyrians, he would depict the arrival of a great and mighty warrior. I mean, isn't that what they needed? Send us a warrior. But he did not do that. What he promised is a child. A child is born for us. And we are given his names. He will, be, he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Well, that's what we've always wanted. Someone who understands and advises with wisdom. And he will be called Mighty God. Yes, that's what we need. Someone who can shove away the darkness and the chaos as he did at creation. And he will also be called Everlasting Father. Someone who will nurture us through all of life with a love that, that knows no conditions and no bounds. And he will be called the Prince of Peace. Ah, this is the long-awaited someone who can pull it all together. The one who can finally teach the wolf and the lamb to lie down together in peace. Isaiah describes that just a few pages later in chapter 11, verse 6 of his prophecy. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. Now that is a picture of peace, isn't it? And it all starts with a little child. Born for us. Given to us. Born to lead us. Remember that Isaiah wrote his prophecy to a people who were in the dark. They were afraid. Israel was often afraid because it was a small country surrounded by devouring empires. The Hebrews felt like they were sheep in the presence of wolves. So peace was a dream for Israel. Isaiah kept the dream alive by assuring them that when 
the Messiah came, the wolves would lie down with the lambs in peace. That is probably not what they expected or wanted to hear. They were actually hoping that the Messiah would get rid of the wolves. We don't want the the wolves lying anywhere around here. Get rid of the wolves. But that's not the promise. The promise is that the wolf and the lamb will live together in peace. You know all about living among the wolves. We do all we can to avoid the wolves. We try to live in neighborhoods where it's easier to raise our little lambs in relative peace. We buy locks, deadbolts, security systems to keep keep the wolves out. We put up with long security lines at the airport designed to keep us safe from the wolves. We hang around church, which we assume has something somewhere, a sign out front that says no wolves allowed, right? In spite of all these precautions, the reality is that there really is no escaping the wolf. That's because the place where the wolf lives is within your own soul. Sin is a devouring wolf. We know what we are capable of doing at least to some degree. We have hurt others. We have hurt ourselves. We have even hurt the people we love the most. As frightened as we are of the wolves around us, we are, or we should be, more afraid of the wolf within us. When the Messiah comes, Isaiah promised, the wolf will lie down with the lamb. But that will take a transformation of their nature. Someday Jesus will return, and his kingdom of peace will reign. But ever since he came at Christmas time, the Messiah has already been making it possible for us to experience the transformation of our fallen human nature. This is the power of God. We live in a world that knows only how to divide us into camps, to divide us between aggressors and victims, bullies and wimps, terrorists and terrorized, as if those were the only options. Until the wolf and the lamb learn to lie down together, the world will remain a frightening jungle, which is exactly what we have today in our own country and in the world. We have a nation and a world without peace. But fretting about changes is not the place where changes begin. God won't destroy the wolves for us any more than he did for the Hebrews. So the transformation has to start within our own hearts through the power of the gospel. This wonderful good news of a Savior who has come for us. The child who was born for us. The son who was given to us to take away our sin by sacrificing himself in our place on a cross to deal with that wolf in our soul. Forgiveness of sin, peace with God, dead things made alive, old things made new, broken things made whole, transformation of our nature that brings about peace in our lives and in our relationships. For example, you lose your temper. I'm sure nobody has lost their temper this week, right? 
We all found our temper this week, didn't we? (laughs) So you lose your temper. And you tell yourself, and probably others, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I lost my temper. I know I have a short fuse, but that's just the way I am. Well, no. (laughs) No, it's not. You have just become accustomed to being an angry person. But that is not who God created you to be. That is not who Jesus redeemed you to be. That is not who the Holy Spirit is changing you to be as he is sanctifying you through the gospel in which you have believed. And that gospel is the power of God at work within you for a complete salvation, not a partial salvation, a complete salvation of you to the very core of your being, to that angry core. And then it works its way from the inside out. Transformation that only God could bring about. Transformation that brings about peace. The angry wolf will lie down in peace with the frightened lamb. And it all starts with this little child who would be born to lead us. How can a child become our great light that dispels the darkness? He's so small, so frail lying in a manger. This is God with us? When the Greeks proclaimed the gods were with us, those gods came in the form of adults who had great mythical powers. When the Egyptians claimed Pharaoh was a god, or when the Romans allowed Caesar to claim divinity, it was after they had built incredible empires, they seemed godlike. Today, people still worship the idols of power, and wealth, hoping that somehow they will get rid of the darkness. But at Christmas time, we join the shepherds and the wise men in worshiping a baby, a child who has been born to us, a son given to us. Now, maybe the birth of a baby gives a little light, but frankly, it's, it's not a blinding light, is it? It's a baby? Right. That is exactly how God intended it to be. This is why at Christmas we do not shoot off fireworks. Instead, we light candles to honor the quiet subtlety of the power of this miracle of God. You may have noticed you were not given, as far as I know, you were not given a firecracker when you came in here tonight. You were given a candle. We light candles on this holy night. A child has been born to us. Why so much attention to the nativity of Jesus? Why do all the stories of the angel visitations, the virgin birth, the heavenly host singing glory to God in the highest, why do those things matter so much? Well, I think the repeated affirmations that a child has been born to us serve to root our thinking about the incarnation of God. God in the flesh. That Jesus isn't a God who just looked human. Nor is he a human who figured out how to climb up to heaven and become God. Jesus is God becoming one of us. God and man in this person, Jesus Christ. And that cannot happen without him taking on all of our human frailty, 
without having any sin of his own. That's miraculous. So our Savior, who is God, he arrives as vulnerable as he can possibly be, as a little baby. How helpless is a little baby? A little baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And as his life began, so did it continue. Throughout his life, Jesus showed that he knows all about hunger and thirst and temptation. He knows about great dreams and betrayal, laughing and crying, bleeding and dying. He knows about all these things. This is why he can be the wonderful counselor who fully understands our lives. He understands everything about you from the inside out. He also knows what it means to be resurrected from the dead when it looks like the darkness wins. Well, he knows what it means to be resurrected from the darkness of death and to ascend into heaven to the right hand of the Father to reign over all creation. And he knows what it is to be the one who will bring about a kingdom that will never end. This is why he is the mighty God, the everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. And it's all because God loves you too much to leave you alone in the dark. There's so much in our lives and in our world that produces darkness. And God looks upon us and he says, I love you too much to leave you in your darkness. The incarnation in Jesus Christ makes it clear that from birth to death, every human emotion and experience is known by our Savior. But he isn't just empathetically bumping around in the dark with us. I mean, that's not much help. This is the God who shines light, bright light into our darkness and makes the love of God to shine in our hearts. And that's the last of the Christmas gifts the Messiah brings to us that we're going to talk about tonight. That is love. But I'm not going to say too much about it, except to say that I want you to notice love in your human relationships. Because the love of God coming to us in Christ, that means that love among friends or family, love in romantic relationships, that gives us some tiny approximation or glimpse or reminder of the love of God for us. We would not know love at all if he did not love us. You remember that. Every time you experience love, you feel love, you see love, this is a reminder to you. This is a glimpse into the heart of God. This may be a tiny glimpse, but it's real. The love of God for you in Jesus Christ. You know, being with others on the journey of life reflects the light of Christ that shines in the darkness love of God that illuminates our lives. So so you can never give up on love. It does not matter how hurt you have been, how old you have become, or how dark things are, you cannot stop loving or you will get lost in the dark again. You will forget the love of God. Many people are familiar with uh, the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German pastor 
who participated in the resistance movement against Adolf Hitler. Not as many people know that in 1943, Bonhoeffer became engaged to the love of his life, a woman named Maria von Wiedemeyer. Shortly after their engagement, Bonhoeffer was arrested. He was sent to prison, where he was eventually executed. His correspondence to Maria has been published in a wonderful book called Love Letters from Cell 92. And that book describes the light of love in a very dark time. In his last letter to his fiancée, Bonhoeffer writes this. We have been waiting for each other for almost two years, dearest Maria. Don't lose heart. Here are a few verses that have occurred to me in recent nights. They are my Christmas greeting to you. And then he writes this poetry. Although the old year still our heart oppresses, and still of evil times we bear the weight, O Lord, bestow upon us that salvation for which our troubled souls thou didst create. The candles brought by thee into our darkness, let them today burn clear and warm and bright, and bring us, if thou wilt, once more together. Thy light, we know it well, shines By kindly powers so wondrously protected, we wait with confidence, befall what may. We are with God at night and in the morning, and just as certainly on each new day. Now, it would be possible to view the love between Bonhoeffer and Maria as little more than a tragic love story cut short by the Nazi gallows. But these letters make it clear that that is not how they saw it, not at all. They saw it as a resolve to love. They knew what was waiting ahead, but they resolved to love as a testimony of their faith in a Savior who would outlive Hitler, just as he outlived Herod, just as he outlives every tyrant who tries to turn the light back into the dark. Here's the good news. The darkness has never, never, never been able to overcome the light of the world who came for us, who stepped down into our darkness that we might have the light of life. So we will always choose love because love first chose us in Christ. As the Apostle John says in his first letter chapter 4, verse 10, he writes, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is the only way back to our Heavenly Father. He came for that purpose. He came to lay down his life. He came to give you his life came to take upon himself your sin, to enter into your darkness and to bear it away, and to give you his righteousness, his peace, his love. You would know the love of a heavenly father, the love that he knew as he walked in this world. Jesus is the only way back to the home of our heavenly father. So when we choose love, there's a lot of hate in the world. It's easy to choose hate. It's easy to hate people. 
It's easy to hate and be hated. It's so natural. We've all got many reasons to hate others. and They find reasons in us to hate us. Very easy. That's the natural thing. That's the wolf. That's the wolf. But when we choose love, as love first chose us, the love of God in Jesus Christ, then a little more light perseveres in the darkness. Jesus said, let your light shine, that people will glorify your Father in heaven. Once we see that a Savior has been born to us, this is not random. This is the mind of God, the heart of God, the will of God. (laughs) We see that a Savior has been born to us, sent to us then there's always hope. There's always peace and joy and love to be found because now we know that we are with God at night and in the morning and just as certainly on each new day, as Bonhoeffer put it. May God be with you tonight and in the morning. May God be with you on each new day. May Jesus, the Messiah, bring you his light to drive away your darkness and bear away your sin. And may you enjoy, really enjoy, his gifts of hope, joy, peace, love, as never before. Maybe you've tasted them before. I I pray that you'll feast on them in the days to come. May he be the light of your world in the year ahead. Amen? Amen.